Welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We hope that you enjoy this episode of our podcast. All the signs that China is beginning to turn on Russia. In the weeks since Russia started its invasion of Ukraine, China has not condemned Putin's attack nor imposed sanctions for taking action. Instead, they reportedly led the narrative that Russia was the victim and the West and NATO were villains. Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, China analyst Jude Blanche said, regardless of whether Beijing had advance warning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Chinese leader 11 Jinping's decision to issue a statement last month outlining a no-limits partnership with Moscow was arguably the single biggest foreign policy blunder of his nearly 10 years in power. 11's public declaration coupled with Beijing's continued diplomatic support for Moscow, has undermined China's reputation and provoked renewed concerns over its global ambitions. On the day of the invasion, Eleven has also stressed he respects the actions taken by the Russian leader during the current crisis according to a statement from Russia's embassy in Beijing. That ideology appears to be slowly shifting, however. China has since shown support for peace talks, and there's been a level of sympathy expressed for Ukraine for foreign audiences. On Ukraine, indeed the current situation there is grave, and China is deeply concerned and grieved Premier Li Keqiang said Saturday, insisting that Russia and China had rock-solid relations. The pressing task now is preventing tensions from escalating or even getting out of control. Yet another mixed message was broadcasted days later when the Chinese ambassador to Ukraine spoke out. We will respect the path chosen by Ukrainians because this is the sovereign right of every nation. China will never attack Ukraine. We will help, in particular in the economic direction. Initially, in February, a Communist Party told China's state-owned media not to report anything unfavorable to Russia. The report was allegedly accidentally published, but China media analyst Tracy Wen Liu took to Twitter to explain how it appears to be changing. China have now been instructed to remain strictly neutral when talking about the war. Under these general guidelines, each media outlet censors itself to avoid official trouble she said. Russia's war in Ukraine has surpassed three weeks and shows no sign of easing. It has caused devastation and destruction, with the UN saying more than 3.38 million people have fled the country. Saudi Arabia warns over oil supplies after attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels. Saudi Arabia has said it won't bear any responsibility for a shortage in global oil supplies after a fierce barrage of attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels affected production in the kingdom, the world's largest oil exporter. The unusually stark warning marked a departure from the giant oil producer's typically cautious statements, as Saudi officials remain aware that even their smallest comments can swing the price of oil and rattle global markets. The salvo of rebel attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities marked a serious escalation in the war, which erupted in 2014 when the Iran-backed Houthis seized the capital Sana'a and much of the country's north.
Saudi Arabia and its allies responded with a devastating air campaign to dislodge the Houthis and restore the internationally recognized government. Seven years later, the conflict has turned into a bloody stalemate and spawned the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. The state-run Saudi press agency quoted the Saudi foreign ministry as saying that the kingdom declares that it will not bear any responsibility for any shortage in oil supplies to global markets in light of the attacks on its oil facilities. The announcement comes as the kingdom remains in lockstep with OPEC and other oil-producing countries in a deal limiting production increases. Gulf Arab oil producers have so far resisted pressure from the Biden administration to pump more crude to help bring down oil prices that have soared amid Russia's war on Ukraine. The international community must assume its responsibility to preserve energy supplies the Saudi statement added, in order to deter attacks that jeopardize the kingdom's production capability and its ability to fulfill its commitments. The international oil benchmark Brent crude hovered over $112 a barrel in trading on Monday, up more than 4% for the preceding session. The price remained below a peak of nearly $140 hit earlier this month, but still some $15 a barrel more than before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. On Sunday, Yemen's Iran-backed rebels launched one of their most intense series of attacks targeting the kingdom's oil and natural gas production, sparking a fire at a petroleum distribution center in the port of Jidda, the country's second-largest city, and disrupting production at a petrochemicals complex in Yanbu on the Red Sea coast. The overall extent of damage at the installations remained unclear. The Saudi Energy Ministry acknowledged a temporary drop in oil output at the 400,000 barrel a day Yanbu site, without elaborating. The government condemned the attacks as a threat to the security of global oil supplies in these extremely sensitive circumstances. Even before Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, global energy supplies were struggling to keep pace with surging post-pandemic demand. The West's punitive sanctions on Moscow, among the world's largest oil producers and exporters, unleashed more turmoil on the market. The relentless wave of Houthi strikes began before dawn on Sunday and sporadically pounded sites throughout the kingdom's south and west for hours, with the roar and thump of missile interceptors rattling residents in Jeddah until just before midnight. The attacks on installations run by the state-controlled national oil company Aramco, among the world's most significant and valuable companies, exposed the gaps in Saudi defenses and recalled the dramatic attacks on two key oil installations in the country's east that temporarily knocked out half of Saudi Arabia's total oil production. The Houthis claimed responsibility for that sophisticated attack in September 2019 which the U.S. and Riyadh later blamed on Iran. Even after shrapnel blasted through the critical Abqaiq oil processing facility, Saudi Arabia delivered no such similar warning about its responsibility for global oil supplies and swinging prices. Instead the kingdom stressed it would speedily return to normal levels of production. After Sunday's strikes, the White House pledged to support Saudi Arabia's defenses and denounced the Houthis as proxies of Iran.
a senior administration official confirmed that the United States has transferred a significant number of Patriot anti-missile interceptors to help Saudi Arabia thwart the barrage of Houthi drone and missile attacks. Empty shelves, price hikes, car shortages, sanctioning Russia proves costly for the West. The unprecedented sanctions against Russia have pushed energy costs higher in Europe and the US, driving record inflation and making it ever more expensive for farmers and truckers to fuel their machinery, afford fertilizer or keep up with other costs. In Europe, which is dependent on Russian oil and natural gas, the sanctions have worsened an energy supply crunch that has driven up costs for households and businesses. RT looks at what life without Russia is like for the West these days. 1. High energy costs trigger unrest. People have been protesting across the EU as the cost of diesel and gasoline has become prohibitively expensive. Thousands of truckers began an indefinite strike in Spain last Monday, leading to traffic jams and picketing across the country. A few truck companies in Spain stopped operating due to high costs resulting in job losses for some. In Italy, a litre of gasoline and diesel now cost more than €2 Euros due to sanctions. France has also been hit with protests against soaring fuel prices. Hundreds of protesting farmers blocked traffic in central Athens to demand the government grant them additional concessions to cope with higher energy costs. In the US, consumers now have to pay at least twice as much for gasoline after Washington announced an embargo on energy imports from Russia. Two empty shelves at grocery stores. The trucker strikes have caused supply problems that are impacting the food industries of entire countries. Images of empty shelves at grocery stores are becoming more common in Europe as supplies of basic foodstuffs and products have been affected. Three governments warn against panic buying. Some retailers had to limit the sales of certain products to prevent customers from buying more than normal household quantities. Governments insist the supply shortages are a hoax and call on people not to panic buy. Experts say that uncertainty in the market is likely to continue, and that the situation could even worsen in the coming weeks. For skirocketing food prices Global food prices, which have already been surging due to the coronavirus pandemic, skirocketed further amid the crisis in Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine are critical global suppliers of wheat, as well as sunflower, rapeseed, flaxseed, and soy used for cooking oils and in animal feed. Russia and Belarus, which also faces Western sanctions over the crisis in Ukraine, are key global suppliers of fertilizers. The resulting surge in fertilizer prices means farmers worldwide are facing higher costs to grow crops. In Italy, Prices for pasta, flour and vegetables have risen sharply, with sunflower oil prices surging the most, by 19%. Data from the National Agriculture Trade Organization, Coldiety, shows that the cost of bread has almost doubled since November, to its current €8 Euros per kilo. Some German supermarket shelves have been stripped bare of cooking oil and flour 
as they were back in March 2020 when the COVID pandemic started. Most recently, the cost of cooking oil has risen significantly, with a cheaper bottle now costing almost €2, Euros, up from less than €1 Euro just a few months ago. 5. Global Auto Market in Trouble The Ukraine crisis has added to the pain suffered by automakers, who had been grappling with high prices due to COVID-related disruptions, including semiconductor shortages. This week major car manufacturers announced they will shut down plants in Europe and raise prices further as supply issues mount. In the United States, prices of used vehicles are currently far above historical norms amid a shortage of new cars and trucks. Russia and Ukraine are significant suppliers of critical commodities to the auto industry like neon gas, aluminum, platinum and palladium and of components like harnesses. Auto market data provider S&P Global Mobility said last week that the Russia-Ukraine conflict and rising prices for commodities will result in 5 million fewer cars being built over the next two years. 6. Europe's Anticrisis Calls The Prime Ministers of Spain, Portugal Italy and Greece met on Friday to call for an urgent European Union-wide response to the energy crisis to come out of the upcoming European Council meeting. The Spanish government says it plans to introduce measures against high energy and fuel prices later this month. The anxiety in Europe is exacerbated by the fear that Russia will eventually respond to Western sanctions by cutting off energy supplies to the continent sending their economies into recession. Historic roots of the Donbass problem explained. Current events have brought a renewed focus on the Donbass, a historical region on the border of Ukraine and Russia. By the standards of history, this area has emerged quite recently, and has always stood a little apart. It's important to understand its evolution when viewing this crisis which began in 2014. Today, Donbass is an industrial and mining region, but for a long time it was largely uninhabited. The steppe zone that ran along the southern borders of medieval Aryus, not yet divided into Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, was called the Wild Fields. It was home to nomadic peoples and farmers only moved south with great difficulty. After the Mongol invasion in the 13th century, the wild fields was a dangerous place to find yourself. Around 400 years, a few peasants from Russia and Ukraine began to gradually settle in the future Donbass. A great leap forward came in the 19th century when the coal deposits discovered there became necessary for industry. It was then that many of the cities without which it is impossible to imagine today's Donbass were founded. In 1869, the British industrialist John Hughes built a factory around which the village of Yuzovka grew it had a few more names, including Stalino, before a local man renamed it Donetsk, in 1961. His name was Nikita Kruskv and he had risen from humble origins as a metal fitter to lead the Soviet Union. In 1868, Kramatorsk appeared and, in 1878, Deboltsev. The cities grew rapidly. 
coal deposits and increasing factories formed the unique face of the region. This even applies to the landscape, wherever you go in modern Donbass, giant landfills catch your eye. Donbass was formed as an industrial region and its cities and factories often flow into one another, even today. The region was inhabited by several streams of colonists from Russia and Ukraine and its population was very diverse, but its peoples mixed easily due to the proximity of their languages and cultures. It was meteoric development in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when it became a huge mine and forge for the Russian Empire, that made it the Donbass we know today. A great deal changed in 1917. Two revolutions and a civil war divided the history of the whole of Russia into before and after. After the February Revolution, when the monarchy fell, a provisional committee ruled the region. Meanwhile, the central raider in Kiev declared Ukraine autonomous, before making a declaration of independence after the October Revolution. The raider made broad territorial claims, which included the territory of Donbass. However, not entirely so. Yuzovka was a border city, according to the raider's stipulations. The nuance was that the raider did not exercise any authority over most of these territories, and it soon was quarrelling with the provisional government in Petrograd. The whole argument could have been quashed in parliamentary debates but, on 7 November 1917, the socialist revolution took place. After that, events took off at a gallop. In Kiev, the communist uprising was suppressed, and Russian officers, who considered the raider lesser evil than the Reds, actively participated. Meanwhile, in the east of the self-proclaimed Ukraine, a very unusual coalition was being formed. Its center was Kharkov a large industrial city that was not part of the Donetsk Basin region but closely tied to it. The Donbass distinct identity had already emerged by that time. Although the area was administratively divided into three entities, they had a common economy and interests. While the raider was in session, local councils in the east of Ukraine announced the unification of the Donbass and Krivbus coal basins. It also included cities belonging to the region of the Don Cossack Army, such as Maripol and Krivoyrog, which was administratively part of the Kherson province, as well as Kharkov. This structure, which was informally called Don Krivbus or simply Donbas did not claim independence and deemed the idea of separating from Russia absurd, considering itself, instead autonomous within it. Moreover, Ukraine's independence projects were of no interest to its creators. Nikolai von Dittmar, chairman of the Council of Congresses of Miners of the South of Russia, noted. Industrially, geographically, and practically speaking, this whole area is completely different from that of Kiev. This whole district has its own completely independent fundamental importance for Russia and lives a separate life. The administrative subordination of the Kharkov district to Kiev is not called for by anything at all, but on the contrary, does not correspond with reality. 
such artificial subordination will only complicate and impede the life of the district, especially since this subordination is dictated by questions of expediency and state requirements, and exclusively by the national claims of the leaders of the Ukrainian movement. In February of 1918, Fyodor Sarzhev, a Bolshevik known by the party pseudonym Artyom, proclaimed the Donetsk Krivoyrog Soviet Republic, DKR, to be an autonomous region within the RSFSR, or Soviet Russia. Was the DKR legitimate? No more and no less than any other self-proclaimed entity formed on the ruins of the Russian Empire, where states proclaimed their independence and then collapsed in a week. Another example was Green Ukraine an attempt to found an independent Ukrainian state near the Pacific Ocean. That project centered around the city of Khabarovsk, which today is a 8,924 kilometers drive from Kiev. The DKR project was not the idea of the leadership of the Bolshevik party. It appeared precisely on the basis of a regional identity that had already been formed. The leader Vladimir Lenin knew of the upcoming creation of the DKR and did not object. The borders Artyom claimed for the Republic were more modest than those drawn by the raider, but still very wide. The DKR's problem was the same as the raider's actual control over the territory was very tenuous or non-existent. The DKR had its own government, which included representatives of three left-wing parties the Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, and Social Revolutionaries. Some of its legislation's nuances appear very unusual and mild by the standards of the time and place. For example, the death penalty was officially banned there. In general, Artyom and his team had a reputation among the Bolsheviks as soft-hearted liberals who hindered repression and released the bourgeois from prison. In short, by the standards of civil war-torn Russia, the DKR was a real stronghold of humanity. In reality, everything was not going as smoothly as the creators of the Republic would have liked. For example, arbitrary reprisals were prohibited but the local authorities secretly practiced them. However, the general trend was more lenient than in other places. The main problem was that Artyom and his comrades could not hold on to power. The German army which was continuing its offensive during the First World War, was rolling in from the west, and Berlin's forces destroyed the DKR by May of 1918. Donbass and all of Russia collapsed into the abyss. At first, the Germans plundered the region. Then it became the scene of battles between the Reds and Whites the main sides in the Civil War. However, Donbass distinctiveness had not disappeared. The debate over how to deal with the area continued until 1923. The region's place in the new order was not at all obvious. Its cities were mostly Russian in both language and self-identification. However, the occupying German forces installed a collaborationist Ukrainian government. Both Germans and Ukrainians shot political opponents and those suspected of sympathizing with the Reds. At the same time, the Ukrainian government began to implement a policy of Ukrainization and attempt to impose its own language and identity on the local population. 
one of its first orders read. In all state institutions of the Kharkov region, all business should be conducted only in the Ukrainian language. Another requirement was for all institutions to replace all writing on signs, posters, and announcements with the Ukrainian language within three days. The statements from leaders claiming that it is impossible to replace the writing in three days are not considered convincing because there are already some establishments that have fulfilled this order. If signs, posters, announcements, etc. have not been replaced with those containing the state language within the stipulated period, then the designated heads of districts, transportation departments, and post offices will be severely punished according to the laws of the Ukrainian People's Republic. These attempts were unsuccessful for a banal reason, there were not enough experts in Ukrainian to introduce the language in schools and offices. The situation reached the level of comedy when the head of the Ukrainization Commission greeted subordinates in Ukrainian, after which everyone switched to Russian. After the defeat of Germany in the First World War, Donbass was easily cleared of Ukrainian formations, and the real struggle began between the Reds and the Whites. However, the issue of Donbass status remained in question. Neither the Reds nor the Whites recognized any independent Ukrainian states. The Bolsheviks, however, welcomed the creation of Ukraine, but only a strictly Red one. Whatever the desires of the raider, it could not secure its claims by force of arms, and authority on the ruins of Russia could only be imposed at gunpoint. Artyom insisted that the region should be part of Soviet Russia, basing his argument on economic ties and the language of the population. However, this idea was torpedoed by none other than Lenin, who instantly scoffed at the idea of recreating the DKR declaring it playing with independence. The logic on which the Soviet leaders based Donbas inclusion in Ukraine is interesting. Separating the Kharkov and Yekaterinoslav, today Dnepropetrovsk, provinces from Ukraine will create a petty bourgeois peasant republic and lead to perpetual fear that the peasant majority will gain the advantage at some other Congress of Soviets because the only purely proletarian districts are the mining areas of the Donetsk Basin and Zaporozhye. The Bolsheviks, who were supported mainly by workers, literally hammered the region into Ukraine precisely because the industrial region was very different from the rest of the republic. Artyom died in a railway accident in 1921 and, of course, couldn't have prevented this. Donbass was incorporated into Soviet Ukraine without any special status, and a campaign of indigenization was launched in the region. Soviet ideology called for the culture, language, and traditions of the people who were considered indigenous to this republic to be literally implanted in the national republics. The USSR, especially in the early days, maintained a kind of governmental affirmative action policy. One of the leaders of the nascent Soviet Union, Nikolai Bukharin, formulated the task as follows. One cannot even approach this from the point of view of equality of nations, and Lenin has repeatedly proved this. On the contrary, we must say that we, as a former great power nation, must, 
put ourselves in an unequal position by making even greater concessions to national tendencies. Only with such a policy, when we artificially put ourselves in a lower position compared to others, only at this price can we buy ourselves the real trust of formerly oppressed nations. The Ukrainization of Donbass was carried out systematically, and with the rigidity typical of the USSR. All mention of times when the region was autonomous were banned, there was an attempt to introduce the Ukrainian language everywhere, and, in 1930, a number of university teachers were arrested for refusing to switch to the Ukrainian language and adopt Ukrainian culture. The Ukrainization of the press, education, and culture continued until the second half of the decade when Joseph Stalin took national policy in different direction. However, Donbass distinctiveness, although somewhat faded, had not completely disappeared. The region's way of life still significantly differed from that in the rest of Ukraine. The industrial, Russian-speaking and largely ethnically Russian region retained its distinct character both during the era of incredible upheavals in the first half of the 20th century and the stagnant times of the late USSR. And it has, likewise, been preserved since the Soviet Union collapsed, in 1991. Israeli PM makes surprise visit to Egypt. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett made a surprise visit to Egypt to discuss shared security interests alongside the UAE's Crown Prince, according to officials cited in several media reports. While Tel Aviv has yet to comment on the purported trip, two unnamed Egyptian security sources told Reuters that Bennett travelled to the Red Sea resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh on Monday for trilateral talks with his Egyptian and Emirati counterparts. The report was corroborated by political and diplomatic sources reached by the Times of Israel, the Jerusalem Post, and Haaretz. Bennett along with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi, met to discuss shared security interests, of which there are quite a few, in all their aspects one diplomat told the Post. Haaretz, meanwhile, reported that the visit was part of an attempt to form a coalition between countries that were previously considered rivals among them Israel and a series of Arab states mainly as a way to oppose Iran. Bennett and Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid issued a joint statement last Friday urging Washington not to lift a terrorist designation for Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, which was placed on the sanctions blacklist by former President Donald Trump. We find it hard to believe that the IRGC's designation as a terrorist organization will be removed in exchange for a promise not to harm Americans, the officials said asking the United States not to abandon its closest allies for such empty assurances. Similar concerns have reportedly been raised by the UAE, with one source based in Abu Dhabi telling the Post that officials are in great shock over discussions about removing the IRGC from the terrorism list. Along with Israel and Saudi Arabia, the UAE is one of Iran's top regional rivals. Bennett's reported visit to Sharm el-Sheikh comes just days after Tel Aviv and Cairo agreed to expand direct flights between the two nations, 
specifically those between Ben Gurion International Airport in Israel and the Egyptian resort town. This agreement will further warm the relations between Israel and Egypt, the PM said at the time, adding that the cooperation between our two countries is expanding in many fields, and this is contributing to regional stability. China, India, America, and the EU, who wins from the Ukraine war, and who loses? Russia's military operation in Ukraine raises questions about the balance of losses and gains for major stakeholders and global actors. When it comes to Moscow and Kiev, this balance is yet to be determined. As of now, the hostilities continue and no political settlement has been worked out, so it's hard to say whether the parties can achieve their political objectives for which a huge price has already been paid in human lives and economic damage of colossal proportions. The prospects for other global and regional players the EU, the US, China, Japan and Iran, among others are much clearer. The European Union is sustaining damage and losses due to numerous severed trade and economic ties with Russia. The key challenge is to find alternatives to Russian oil, gas, metals, and other commodities on the European market. This will require a great concentration of resources and political will. It will affect the growth of the EU economy and determine how competitive its industry will be in the coming years. Nevertheless, however painful it may be, Russian raw materials can be replaced. For oil, it won't take long, while Russian gas is a bit harder to cut. The situation will be different from nation to nation within the bloc, as their levels of dependency on Russian resources vary. Still, a range of Russian goods can likely be replaced within a few years. Regardless of the developments on the Ukrainian front and Russia's foreign policy, pushing Moscow out of the common market will be a long-term process. The EU has to take care of Ukrainian refugees. This is not an easy task. The situation is changing rapidly, making an accurate assessment impossible, but we are clearly talking about millions of people. The EU nations need to accept these refugees and help them to adapt and even integrate. Many European countries will have to spend more on social programs. At the same time, this will benefit the EU in the medium term. It has extensive experience dealing with migrants. Germany especially excels at this. Unlike migrants from Islamic countries, Ukrainians aren't that different from EU Europeans in terms of culture. They are better educated, adapt and integrate faster, and don't tend to form closed communities. For the economy, this will be a great demographic injection. Most EU countries will vigorously increase defence spending. This will not necessarily correspond to growth in the bloc's political clout, however. It will still remain a junior partner within NATO. However, the political and military role of certain member states will become much more significant. Germany comes to mind again, since it has great capacity to increase its defence spending, modernise its army and develop its defence industry. For the advanced military-industrial complexes of European countries, 
this will yield long-term benefits. It will also be a win for the European project as a whole. Russia has become a major consolidating factor for the EU, improving its internal discipline, strengthening its self-identity, and solidifying its eastern flank. On the surface, America's expenses are not as significant, although banning Russian oil may cause some difficulties domestically, in the form of soaring gas prices, for example. However, Washington's main problems are found elsewhere. The sharp escalation in the confrontation with Russia is a distraction from the Asia-Pacific region. The US will have to build up its military presence in Europe, which leaves fewer capabilities for containing China. America is also concerned about the possibility of the Ukrainian crisis turning into a war between NATO and Russia. If taken to the extreme, this could lead to nuclear escalation. Washington will have to contain Moscow but act within certain boundaries in order to avoid escalation here and now. It would appear that the current priority is to manage the intensity of the conflict and make sure it doesn't boil over. In other aspects, the US is definitely set to make gains. The new level of confrontation with Moscow is helping NATO strengthen internal discipline and encourage European members to contribute more to common security. Donald Trump, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush were not able to achieve this. Now it's being done with no difficulty at all. As a matter of fact, NATO may expand even further. Membership for neutral Sweden and Finland is now up for discussion, and support for this idea is growing in both countries. If Helsinki joins NATO, the bloc's power will be projected over Russia's northwestern areas. In theory, the United States could also use the need to divert resources to Europe to its advantage. Washington and its allies are now free to arrange an unprecedented hit on Russia's economic and technological potential. Russia will undoubtedly remain a major military challenge for America and the West. However, they will be able to undermine the economy that this military potential is based on, and then redirect their attention to Asia. The US energy sector has a lot to gain from the crisis. Before long, it will take over a sizable chunk of the European market. It will also now be easier for the Americans to squeeze Russia out of the world's arms markets. While China and India will remain major consumers of Russian weaponry, Moscow will find it more difficult to compete in other markets due to strong pressure from the US. Over the years, the US has accumulated a host of domestic issues. The Russia factor could help both Congress and American society to regain a sense of unity and cohesion, however short-lived. That said, the degree to which the ongoing crisis could affect the 2024 presidential election remains unclear. Meanwhile, China gains a lot of room for action. Unlike the EU and the US, the PRC stands to lose very little due to the current crisis. Washington's military and political pressure on Beijing is waning. With an extensive package of anti-Russian sanctions now in place, China can lay claim to a significant share of the Russian market, 
which has now been vacated by the collective West. While there may be infrastructural and logistical hurdles to overcome, Russian energy resources will become more accessible to China at lower prices than before. Furthermore, China is set to become Russia's key financial partner a partnership that will be skewed heavily in China's favor. Thus, Beijing is further strengthening its positions on its northern and northeastern borders. There seem to be no alternatives to Russia partnering up with China. China will soon enjoy new opportunities to exert influence in Central Asia. As it learns from Russia's experience with sanctions, Beijing will tighten its own economic and financial security to withstand a similar confrontation with the West. That said, current developments are unlikely to result in a full-fledged Russian-Chinese military and political alliance. It appears that China will maintain its distance and try to remain as flexible as possible. For Japan, in the short term, losses will most likely outweigh benefits. The prospect of signing a long-overdue peace treaty with Russia is becoming very dim. Even before this new phase of confrontation, it was clear that Russia and Japan had reached an impasse in negotiations. While there wasn't even a hint of progress on that track, at least the theoretical possibility of it remained. After the events of 2014, Tokyo pursued a balanced and pragmatic foreign policy, imposing mostly symbolic sanctions on Russia, while remaining active in the Russian market and maintaining constructive relations with Russia's leadership. After 24 February 2022, Japan abandoned this approach and chose to stand with the US and the EU. Tokyo will sustain some costs as a result of withdrawing from the Russian market and having to find substitutes for Russian commodities, but these will not be critical. The main consequence is that the escalation of relations with Russia, just as we saw with Germany, will provide a strong incentive for a definitive review of the post-World War II national security paradigm when it comes to the use of armed force. Japan will now have the confidence to begin reclaiming its status as a full-fledged political and military power in the region. As a result, the solution to the Northern Territories issue will be viewed, more and more often, from a military perspective. India will be barely affected. New Delhi will maintain dialogue with Moscow and thwart anyone's attempts to hinder military and technical cooperation between the two countries. Still, lobbyists for Western arms manufacturers might find themselves in a more favorable position. China's growing strength resulting from the crisis is a problem for India, but it's nothing new. The Ukrainian crisis might also benefit a number of countries that are currently suffering from punitive U.S. sanctions. First and foremost, this concerns Venezuela and Iran. Washington might lift some penalties to compensate for losses arising from the ban on Russian oil imports. Politically speaking, this is easier to do in Venezuela's case since the issue there is ultimately about the governmental system something the U.S. could turn a blind eye to for a time. Venezuela's heavy oil could replace Russian imports on the U.S. market, 
while Nicolas Maduro's regime would be able to breathe a little easier and secure some profits in foreign currency. It's trickier with Iran because of the country's military nuclear program and the new version of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The latter is a multilateral process that also involves Russia. Technically, the US could let Iran resume trading oil on the global market without a nuclear deal in place. For example, the Biden administration could bring back the waivers that Donald Trump scrapped, which had allowed a number of European and Asian countries to import crude oil from Iran. The problem for the US here is that Tehran would also get a reprieve and strengthen its negotiating position, which would lead to pressure from Republicans who are against deals with the country. In light of pushing back against Russia, however, these differences might end up on the back burner. In any case, Iran would get the chance to benefit from this. This would also prevent the sanctioned countries from forming a coalition that could theoretically include China, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. China will trade with the other three, but not at the expense of its ties with the West. All in all, the new stage of the Ukrainian crisis will have repercussions on a global scale. For some countries, it will entail losses in the short and medium term and significant losses at that but for many others, it will open new opportunities for extending their influence in the long term. Moscow warns of $500 a barrel oil. Oil prices will jump to $300 a barrel if the West abandons Russian oil. The country's deputy prime minister and former energy minister Alexander Novak said on Monday, adding that some see it possibly reaching $500 a barrel. The warning comes as the EU plans to discuss placing an embargo on Russian crude as part of its fifth set of sanctions aimed at putting more pressure on Moscow to stop its military operation in Ukraine. Novak added that if Western consumers stop buying Russian crude, the country will diversify its supplies and will find buyers elsewhere. Oil prices have risen by nearly $4 a barrel on Monday, with global benchmark Brent exceeding $112 by midday GMT, on expectations that the European Union might join the United States in banning imports of Russian crude. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, meanwhile, has called such an embargo unrealistic pointing out that EU countries still heavily depend on Russian oil and gas and cannot simply cut themselves off on short notice. Too many refineries in the eastern and western part of Europe still completely depend on Russian oil and with gas it's even worse Reuters quoted Rutt on Monday as having said, ahead of the expected debate by EU foreign and defence ministers in Brussels. AI invents 40,000 chemical weapons in only six hours. A drug developing artificial intelligence needed just six hours to come up with 40,000 potentially deadly chemical weapons, a fresh study has revealed. The authors of the paper, published in Nature Machine Intelligence earlier this month, said they'd carried out the thought experiment to figure out if artificial intelligence, AI, could be misused by evil actors and the results their work produced have proven that the danger is real. As part of the study, the usual data was given to the AI, 
but it was programmed to process it in a different way, looking for toxic combinations. In less than six hours after starting on our in-house server, our model generated 40,000 molecules that scored within our desired threshold the paper said. It came up not just with the VX compound, which is one of the most dangerous nerve agents ever created, but also with some unknown molecules, predicted to be more toxic. This was unexpected because the datasets we used for training the AI did not include these nerve agents the researchers pointed out. The findings were so alarming that the team had serious doubts about even making them public, Fabio Urbina, the lead author of the study, told The Verge. The dataset they used on the AI could be downloaded for free and they worry that all it takes is some coding knowledge to turn a good AI into a chemical weapon-making machine Urbina pointed out. We hope that you have enjoyed our podcast we thank you for your support. We hope to see you again next time.